Welcome to Worldview, a foreign affairs podcast from the Irish Times. I'm Chris Dooley. On Saturday the 7th of April, up to 75 people, including young children, were killed in a horrific attack in Douma, with as many as 500 further casualties. The House of Commons in London yesterday, as British Prime Minister Theresa May explained her decision to join the United States and France in launching missiles at targets in Syria last weekend. It was not just morally right, but also legally right to take military action together with our closest allies, to alleviate further humanitarian suffering. This was not about intervening in a civil war. May authorised the strikes without seeking parliamentary approval, arguing that such was the urgency, there was no time to do so. Mr Speaker, this statement serves as a reminder that the Prime Minister is accountable to this Parliament, not to the whims of the US President. We clearly... We clearly need... We clearly need a War Powers Act in this country. Dennis Staunton is our London editor. Dennis, uh, there was a lengthy debate in the House of Commons on Monday on the legality of the airstrikes in Syria. Jeremy Corbyn asked for a second debate today, Tuesday, as he calls for a War Powers Act to prevent the government from taking such military action without a parliamentary vote. Was it unprecedented for Theresa May to act without parliamentary approval? The fact is that since the Iraq war, and even going back to the Falklands war, on every occasion that the UK has launched uh, military intervention since then, the Prime Minister of the day has gone to, to Parliament and sought parliamentary approval, and usually got it. There was one occasion in 2013 when David Cameron wanted to take part in an attack on Syria. It is not about taking sides in the Syrian conflict. It is not about invading. It is not about regime change or even working more closely with the opposition. It is about the large-scale use of chemical weapons and our response to a war crime, nothing else. And Parliament voted against it, and so he didn't go ahead. This time, Theresa May didn't go for parliamentary approval in advance. She said there was no time, that uh, there was an urgency about the operation, because the the idea was that if they didn't move quickly, that uh, Assad could use chemical weapons a second time, and also that it was necessary to preserve the operational secrecy of the attack. This is, is something which almost no opposition politicians in the Parliament accept, and many of of, uh, her own Conservative MPs, including Ken Clark, the former Chancellor, are unhappy about that as well. So what's going to happen on uh, Tuesday today is that you will have this debate lasting for about three hours. And at the end of it, uh, the, they'll vote on a motion, which is simply to say that this House considered the issue of parliamentary uh, engagement and involvement in making these decisions. And so it won't be a, a binding motion that will oblige the government to do anything one way or another, but it will give some kind of sense of the feeling of the House of Commons. I guess a weakness in, in Theresa May's argument that she had to act before going to Parliament was the fact that Donald Trump several days earlier had tweeted that these airstrikes would take place. But how did she do in defending her position? She did quite well in so far as she uh, had her own party very much united behind her in terms of being in favour of the airstrikes themselves. And an awful lot of Labour MPs who don't like Jeremy Corbyn, they got up and uh, openly contradicted their leader's position and offered their support for the airstrikes as well. So in terms of the principle of and you know and the legality and the justification of the operation she did quite well and then there was probably some relief i think on the part of the conservative whips that uh, that very few conservative mps actually got up 
to complain about the uh, the business of parliamentary uh, prior approval, although almost every opposition MP who spoke in the debate did actually bring that up. And she got rattled a number of times when it was suggested to her that uh, she was simply following the instructions from Donald Trump and insisted that she made the decision and that uh, she made it in Britain's national interest and wasn't taking any orders from Donald Trump. But the government didn't push for a vote in support of its stance. Why was that? Because it would have won a vote, wouldn't it, had it forced one? I think it probably would have won a vote. Uh, but I, I think one reason is that they don't want to, to start a precedent of retrospectively seeking a vote for any action. I think one of the uh, the things that the government was quite keen to do was to 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 shut down this convention, which has built up over the last number of years, whereby they uh, you know they feel obliged to go to Parliament before taking uh, even a relatively modest military action. So they don't want to replace that with another convention, which would mean that they're going to be dragged back and uh, and have to have a retrospective vote uh, about it later. I mean, one of the areas where what was interesting I thought about uh, the debate yesterday was that uh, Jeremy Corbyn went on two uh, attacks lines. One was just uh, was about the parliamentary approval bit, and there he had his whole party behind him. But the other uh, element was that he questioned the legal basis for, uh, for for the attacks. And in questioning them, he had, there were very few of his own MPs who showed any support for that view. And uh, you know, there was an awful lot of hostile barracking from the other side. But actually, he has a point. I mean, essentially, what he's saying is that, you know, the government's line on this is that it was justified on the basis that it was a humanitarian intervention. Uh, and uh, and what Jeremy Corbyn says is that actually, according to the United Nations Charter, uh, if you want to uh, take military action in another country, you have to either have it approved by the United Nations Security Council or uh, it has to be in your own national self-defense or you've been invited in by the other the country's government. And obviously, none of these apply. But over the last sort of 10, 20 years, a kind of a doctrine of humanitarian intervention has built up so that, uh, you know, and in some cases, uh, you know, there have been operations like, say, the NATO operation to prevent ethnic cleansing in Kosovo or in the early 90s, the no-fly zones uh, over Iraq, which hadn't got prior Security Council approval, but they uh, in some cases got subsequent approval after the event. And this has kind of created this doctrine of uh, humanitarian intervention, that if there's a very urgent humanitarian need or, or a need to prevent some kind of uh, slaughter or, or, or terrible uh, damage to people, that you can go in without uh, UN approval. But as Jeremy Corbyn said, this is actually quite a contested uh, you know, idea in international law. And so it's in some ways it's quite surprising that this idea that he was proposing, which is actually that even though uh, diplomacy is difficult and the Russians have been very obstructive at the United Nations, that nonetheless uh, you ought to prioritize a diplomatic route rather than reaching for uh, a military solution straight away. And it's in a way the, uh, the position he's articulating is very close to Ireland's traditional foreign policy approach and approach to the primacy of the United Nations. But it's clearly an idea that within the political class at Westminster has gone very much out of fashion. And I know one of those who, who took, who kind of contested his view yesterday was Dominic Grieve, the former Attorney General. And he was saying, well, if you must go through the Security Council, well then, 
you just if you have one permanent member there and obviously in this case Russia siding with Syria you, you need one permanent member you know standing alongside uh, some uh, you know rogue state renegade state and you'll never get anything done so some of this kind of does point isn't it to the the deadlock at the Security Council now did that route almost it is almost impossible to get sort of anything done there isn't it yeah, but but actually, that was the that was, the system was designed with that in mind. You know, if you think about why you know the post-war uh, uh, system of international law and the United Nations, the idea was that you were going to make it as difficult as possible to have the uh, the uh, you know the two great powers, the United States and the Soviet Union, in direct military conflict with one another. And so the whole point, in a sense, was that it was to make it difficult to actually have, you know, to take unilateral action or to take military action, and that you had to work this out within this uh, Security Council, where neither side was going to be able to prevail without the support of the other. So all five uh, permanent members have a veto. And so, in a way, what they're complaining about is actually uh, the the design of the post-war system, which actually has pretty successfully uh, so far avoided most direct military confrontations between uh, Russia and the Western powers. Obviously, there have been various proxy wars along the way. But uh, so, so I think it's you know uh, it's it's an area that, uh, that you know as I say it is still contested. But interestingly, there's a bit more debate in the United States over the last few days about the legality of the uh, of the Syrian airstrikes than there has been here in Britain. And I was just going to come to that because we're focusing, I suppose, on the House of Commons. But as you say there, that that debate is taking place in the wider context of um, a debate among the among in France, in the European Union, and so on about the merits and the justification for these uh, airstrikes, which I suppose we should we should remind ourselves were conducted in response to an apparent chemical weapons attack in in Douma in Syria, which the Western allies have blamed on the Syrian government. How successful, Dennis, do you think the the Western allies have been in justifying a the necessity for the action and and b its effectiveness? I think they've uh, you know the fact that the that it was so. Limited Limited. It, it lasted just 70 minutes. There were 105 missiles. It was three targets. So it was very limited in focus. Uh, I think that probably helped. It happened over a weekend. I think where they've been less persuasive is about the timing. Why could they not wait for the weapons inspectors to get in and do their job? The idea that you had to strike straight away that you couldn't wait for a few days until you heard a report from the weapons inspectors. That, I think, is, you know, I'm not sure that the public is entirely persuaded of that. There hasn't been all that much polling uh, about this. Certainly the polls in advance of it suggested that it was not a popular uh, operation. But I do think that, uh, you know, if this is it, and if there are, you know, if there's no further operation, then I think probably people will be, uh, you know, it's not going to be such a big deal from the public opinion point of view. But on the other hand, it is pretty clear that it hasn't taken much of a feather out of Assad. He's uh, celebrating Syria's national day today and seems to be in top form and feeling as if... uh, things are going his way. Yeah, I mean, this is the, the issue of the effectiveness, isn't it? I mean, it's obviously it's too early to say, but there's there's no indication yet that these strikes will have done anything to change the course of the war there. They say that that's not what they were trying to do. Their argument is that it, you know, it was purely limited to trying to uh, degrade his uh, chemicals weapon, chemical weapons capacity. And so it was very specifically about his use of chemical weapons. And so they claim that the three targets that they hit were associated with uh, a chemical weapons program, and that by hitting them, it's made it more difficult for him to do that next time. I think they accept that uh, there's very little they can do to influence the the course of the war, which appears to be resolving itself slowly and in a, a, a very painful and blood-drenched way in Assad's favour. 
uh, in the end, it, it will be resolved by some kind of negotiation. All wars are, in the end, resolved in that way. And it's really a question of how uh, you can get uh, the set of circumstances, the environment and the context for those talks to be in uh, in what the various parties think is, is the right place. And that really does involve uh, Western engagement with Russia. Uh, and obviously, Western relations with Russia are uh, have been particularly difficult in the last few weeks. And this has uh, has made them that bit worse. Today, Russia announced that inspectors from the OPCW, that's the Organisation for the Prohibition of Chemical Weapons, will be given access to the alleged chemical attack site in Syria tomorrow, Wednesday. Syria was not the only contentious issue discussed in Westminster on Monday. Home Secretary Amber Rudd apologised for what she accepted was the appalling treatment of a group known as the Windrush Generation. Dennis, while we were all waiting for this debate on on Syria to take place in the House of Commons on Monday, this was raised. It immediately became, I think, an almost bigger story in Britain than the Syrian airstrikes. Can you tell us what's the background to the story? It's uh, it, it has indeed. You're quite right. It has become a bigger story. These were people who came over from the Caribbean after the Second World War. They're named after the Emperor Empire Windrush, which was the first boat that brought uh, the first 500 of these people over in 1948. The Empire Windrush brings to Britain 500 Jamaicans. Many are ex-servicemen who know England. They served this country well. In Jamaica, they couldn't find work. Discouraged but full of hope, they sailed for Britain. Citizens of the British Empire coming to the mother country with good intent. So these are people who arrived usually as children, accompanying their parents in the 1950s and the 1960s from the, uh, the Caribbean. At that time, they didn't need any papers. And then under a new Immigration Act in 1971, they were given indefinite leave to remain. So anybody who was already there was allowed to remain in the UK indefinitely. But nobody gave them any documentation or any piece of paper uh, to say that. They just said, you know, you're allowed to stay and that's it if that's who you are so they carried on with their lives and uh, and didn't really uh, you know think too much about it in most in most cases but it's emerged uh, in the last few days that a number of these people in recent months have uh, been threatened with deportation and have been refused access to health care or, or handed uh, handed bills for health care when they access the NHS and this is, can be traced back to Theresa May when she was Home Secretary. And she uh, she introduced in 2012 what she called a hostile environment for illegal immigrants. And the idea was that you were going to make life as difficult as possible for anyone who was in Britain uh, illegally. And so, for example, uh, from that time, if you wanted to access the NHS, you had to prove that you had a right to be living in Britain. If you wanted to access benefits, if you wanted to get uh, to rent a flat, if you wanted to engage with the state in any kind of way, this is what you were going to have to do. You had to show that you had a right to be here. So what happened was that these people who had never had documentation couldn't prove that they had a right to be here. And then uh, applying this, uh, you know, this doctrine, then the Home Office in some cases took very, very uh, severe action, uh, sending them to detention centres. Uh, I mean, a Home Office minister said this morning that uh, you know, that it doesn't appear they're not aware of anybody who's actually being deported because of it. But this has created a terrible outcry because uh, these people were people who were invited to come over to Britain after the war to help to rebuild the country. There are people who are now uh, at retirement age. And that's one of the reasons probably that this happened to them, that they suddenly found themselves at the age when they were accessing these services and coming into contact with the state more than they might have uh, previously or maybe moving to a smaller place. 
uh, to live. And so uh, it's caused terrible distress to these people and uh, an and outcry. And unfortunately for uh, Theresa May, it does the trail of breadcrumbs heads back to her. And so, uh, you know, it's also doubly embarrassing because uh, London this week is hosting the uh, heads of government of the Commonwealth countries. And until the other day, uh, Theresa May was saying that she wasn't going to meet any of these uh, leaders of Caribbean countries to talk about this. And now today she is doing so. She's meeting them and uh, and apologizing to them and apologizing for uh, for what has happened to these people. And, and Dennis, as I mentioned, Amber Rudd, the now Home Secretary, um, Theresa May's old job, she used fairly extraordinary language in the House of Commons yesterday when discussing this. Let, let's hear a clip from what she had to say. Mr Speaker, I share the Honourable Gentleman's admiration for the people who came here from the Caribbean and contributed so much to our society in many, many different ways. And that admiration remains in place. I am concerned that the Home Office... Is becoming, has become too concerned with policy and strategy and sometimes lose sight of the individual. And this is about, this is about individuals. And we have seen the individuals... Uh, Dennis, was, was that close to an admission there that the Conservative government didn't just get this wrong, but in, in fact has forgotten that decisions on immigration you know, affect human beings and, and impact on, on innocent people's lives? Yes, I think that's what it was. And in fact, that's the uh, and that really is the accusation uh, that's been made that actually the reason that this all happened is it wasn't a question of incompetence on the part of the Home Office. In fact, those officials were carrying out the policy and it was a policy which, uh, you know, which spoke about immigrants simply as a problem and didn't think of them in terms of, of being people. And of course, this has another uh, implication because you're going to have an, another generation, the next sort of big generation that's likely to come up against this problem are those uh, Asians who came from Uganda fleeing uh, in the 1970s, fleeing Idi Amin. But then you also have another problem, which is that uh, Britain has been making various guarantees to the European Union about how it's going to treat EU citizens. Uh, you know, after after Brexit, and this again is going to raise questions just about how serious. Uh, Britain is whether this really is a, a place that's, uh, you know, as they insist, that's open and is welcoming of people and of citizens, because um, you know certainly the experience of these uh, of these people from the Windrush generation suggests the opposite. Do we know, by the way, how many people have been affected? No, they've set up a task force to find out exactly how many people are affected and to work out, uh, you know, how they can uh, can deal with the issues. But people can be affected in different ways. So some people were threatened with deportation, even sent to detention centres. But other people may simply have come up against problems when they were trying to access public services, maybe in the health service or in other public services. So, uh, so in other words, that you you know, it's hard to know exactly how many people were affected because they were affected in so many different ways. And do you think, Dennis, that this scandal can be contained? Is, is it will it blow over, or is there real trouble in store here for for the, for the government and for Theresa May in particular? I think it's uh, it's one of those things that's politically quite dangerous because it seems to confirm something that a lot of people think about the Conservative Party anyway, that it is, in the words of Theresa May some years ago, the nasty party. And so uh, if you look at polling and look at one of the reasons why people under the age of 45 are less inclined to vote for the Conservatives than older people, part of it is to do with what they talk about in terms of values. They don't share our values. They feel as if the Conservatives are not really a very open or tolerant party. And this will reinforce 
that sense of who the Conservatives are in a way that's going to be most unwelcome for them, particularly as they face into local elections on the 3rd of May. Dennis, we'll leave it there for now. Thank you. Thank you very much. That's all for this week. For more on these and other stories, go to irishtimes.com. Thanks for listening. Goodbye for now.